So our theme for this season of Easter is the resurrection as the foundation for Christian life. And this morning, we're going to begin with the resurrection as a basis for peace. So last week at Easter, we said that the resurrection of Jesus was the basis for a worldview that provides a new and better perspective on all of life. And as I said, we want to begin this Sunday with how that might work with the notion of peace. Now, uh, as I was thinking about this week and writing this message, I realized I had to say that this is actually going to be more like confessions of a lifelong worry wart. That's what my mother used to call me when I was little. She used to say, you're a worry wart. And I used to think, what the heck is a worry wart? You know, I'd look at my skin like, what is a... So I still don't really know what a worry wart is other than the notion that apparently uh, I had more than my share of worry and of anxiety. And so it's been a lifelong issue for me that over the last beginning in the early 90s, so whatever that is, over the last 26 or so years, I have given myself to, and I'll say something about that more before we're done this morning, these three paths that have been uh, very crucial to my own experiential learning on the path to peace. So first, just some definition. When Jesus says three times in this passage, my peace I give to you, he uses the Greek word irene. Um, and it's, uh, it borrows, of course, from the Hebrew shalom, and, and it's meant, like when he says, peace be with you, it's meant to say something like security and safety and contentment be unto you. In other words, he, it's like a prayer blessing that a tranquil state of the soul, the kind of soul that's assured of its salvation through Christ, will then have a kind of contentment with its earthly lot of whatever sort that lot might be. So that peace, and this is, this is what I would want to say has been one of the great gifts of pursuing this for 20-some years, is that peace is experienced usually by the human person as the rest of their soul. Their will comes to rest. Rather than fighting and striving and squirming and screeching and squawking, their will comes to a place of rest. And it comes there from the result of resurrection, from the assurance of how things are going to turn out. So if you look at your passage in John 20, uh, we're going to go back a bit in the story here and just remind ourselves that Jesus, knowing that fearful challenges were going to come to his first friends, and that these fearful challengers would make peace difficult to experience, you remember in the upper room discourse, in their last, last meal together, he twice promises them peace. So in the passage we're reading, he's blessing them with peace. In the upper room discourse, he says to them, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus, seeing all that was coming, is reinforcing this with his first friends. John 16, in me you will have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now those are very famous, well-known passages. But they're said because these first followers of Jesus, like us, 
were having a hard time living into the kind of peace that Jesus was trying to bless them with. This is what the passage is, intends to communicate to us when it says, fearful of the Jews, the 11 had locked all the doors of the house and they were hiding. But then Jesus comes and he stands in the midst of them. Jesus, you have to get this, you missed the whole point. Jesus, the crucified and dead one. And dead people do not come alive again. I mean, you have to realize these were not stupid or particularly mystical people. They knew as much about human biology as you do. They knew that dead people don't just suddenly become alive again. And they knew the birds and bees. They knew how babies were made, right? These were smart people. Now, they may have heard of a resuscitation of someone who was dead and maybe had stopped breathing but had come back to life, but they died again. Resuscitation is different than resurrection. Resurrection was unheard of. And so it's precisely that crucified person who's standing among them. I want you to just land on those two words for a minute, among them. And, and I, then I want you to begin to feel this. Within their fear, he stood in the presence of their very bodily fear. In their communal fear, he stood there precisely as the crucified one. And this helps us understand that the reason we're so challenged with peace is that the world is full of hurt and pain and evil. But the crucified one standing in the middle of their pain says that God's plan in and through his son can stand in the middle of the worst the world has to offer. Now then that raises the question, well, how does Jesus stand in the worst that the world has to offer? Here's how he stands. Peace be with you. Three times. Peace be with you. And this speaks directly to our fear. And it spoke directly to their fear. And the fear is, now they would have thought of this obviously in very Jewish categories and would have had their own issues with it. But for us, I think it speaks to our fear that these good intentions that we were just singing about, for instance, or the story that Peter lays out in Acts, our fear is that God's good intention for the world is just kind of a churchgoer's dream. It's the kind of thing non-pragmatic religious people say. It can't actually mean anything. Just look at your news feeds. It can't actually correspond to any important reality. It has to just be sort of religious talk. This business of the peace of God coming through his good intentions for the earth, it just seems so out of touch with the real chaos of the world that says to us there precisely is no peace. But here's what I so cherish you getting. The one who stands among them and offers them peace is the one who just took upon himself the most hate-filled, unjust evil the world has to offer. And now he's risen in the midst of their fear. And this says to them, this is the sure sign that God reigns. Even when we as a people, God's people, the Jewish people are out of control with confusion 
even when the world's governments are out of control with power and authority and combined they do their worst to Jesus, like the worst of religion and the worst of civil society is done to Jesus. He feels, therefore, the full brunt of the world's pain. When someone like Bill Maher or Stephen Colbert teases about religion, they're not the first to have thought that religion does bad. The, the 11 people in this room locked behind doors were there for the fear of religious people. Read your text. They were fearful of their own religion and fearful of the civil authorities and the evil commingling of those things. And it's in the midst of that crazy confusion and fearful pain that precisely the risen Christ, the same Christ, but the risen Christ, who now has a new glorified body, stands in the middle of them and this says to them, God actually does reign. And this is how the resurrection becomes for us the basis of peace. Now, as soon as I say this, you're going to go, well, duh. But let me say it anyway. Peace doesn't mean the absence of hardship. It doesn't mean the absence of suffering. It doesn't mean the absence of unpleasant changes, right? And we all go, well, duh. Well, but now here's the important question. If that's such a duh to us, then why the powerful gravitational pull to the default position that says otherwise? Why do we so often feel full of guilt and shame, of blaming others, of confusion, of sort of a grim fatalism because we really don't have peace in the midst of those things? It becomes to us sort of an ought or religious should but not a lived, experienced reality. And what the resurrection teaches us and the reason it becomes a basis for Christian life and a basis for peace is that peace comes from what we've learned about God, God who raised Jesus to life. And thus we're confident and hopeful and do not indulge. Just hang on that word for a minute. We don't indulge thoughts of rejection, failure, hopelessness because we know better. Yeah, those thoughts flit across our minds. Of course they do. They tug on our hearts in those little split seconds. Of course they do. But we don't indulge them. They don't become for us our internal identity. Why? Because we know better. We know that in the midst of that, we have this kind of experienced assurance that underlies an effortless, authentic peace. One of the best three words I've ever written. They ought to show up in a book someday. And if I had a magic wand, you know, pastors at some points always wish they had a magic wand, and we never do. But if I did, or if this were a substance, if I could just pour it over you, I would. An effortless, authentic peace. A peace that passes understanding, as the scriptures say. When Paul uses that phrase, passus understanding, it's, it's a very rich Greek construction that means something like, may you have a peace that goes far above and beyond your normal mindset. It's a compound word. Above your mindset is essentially what it means. May you have a peace that, that transcends, goes far above your normal way of thinking about things. Well, then how do we cultivate, if we want to give ourselves to this idea in a formational way, how do we cultivate peace? And one way to do it, I think, is to think about the greatness and goodness of the boundless God, again, that we were just singing about. 
So we think about, we think upon the goodness, the greatness, the boundlessness of God who takes us up into his life. I mean, we just sang, in you we live and move and have our being. Well, see, once that becomes your default thought life, well, that allows for a certain sort of peace. But when you think, I live and move and have my being within the dysfunction of my historical family, that's a different sort of thing. Or I live and move and have my being within my present structure of identity. That is a very different thing. But if we can give ourselves just over and over again, just, just sort of peacefully giving ourselves to this notion that, no, it's in God, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, that I live and move and have my being. And that as God takes me up into his life, so, do you need to hear that again? As God takes me up into his life so that in him I live and move and have my being, that then is our peace and joy. And this is what Paul means. You all know these famous words from Philippians 4. Whatever is true, right, pure, lovable, good, admirable, whatever has virtue, let your mind dwell on them. We all know those words, right? What you may not be aware of is the words that come next. And the God of peace will fill you with all joy. That's the result of giving your mind to those things. And in our readings in Acts 2, this is what Peter's first sermon is trying to do. It's, it's interpreting what's just happened in and through Jesus in light of the promises the Jewish people of Jesus' day would have thought in terms of like prophetic promises. We might think of it today more in terms of narrative. And so Peter is just trying to explain what happened based on the previous scenes in this movie and saying this is happening in a way where the headline that Peter might be preaching, had he had a, a, a title for this sermon, it might have been something like this. God is emphatically in control of this whole story. The prophets have told us this. We just experienced what they said was going to happen. God is emphatically in control. This is what, if you look at your passage, this is what that phrase means. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. What I think Peter's just having an aha moment and he's sharing it with everybody else when he's realizing, wow, God's deliberate, meaning his foretold plan, man, this far surpasses both the religious confusion and fear of the Jews and the power politics of Rome. Well, how do we know this? Because neither of them won. God raised him from the dead and we're all witnesses of it. Now in about five minutes when I'm done, you're gonna have a little quiet time. I'm gonna sit down and we're gonna say the creed. But especially for those of you who are, you know, sometimes we get a little iffy about liturgy and like, why do we say the creed every week and that sort of thing. Okay, everybody look me in the eye, here's why. Because before there was a creed, before there was a codification of things, there were eyewitnesses. We are not firstly religious we are not, secondly, creedal. We are the inheritors of eyewitnesses who knew precisely who Jesus was and knew when he appeared to them in that room and fed them breakfast on the beach and walked through walls and talked to them and told them, wait in Jerusalem. It was that same voice, that same person who was now miraculously and alive in a way that no one had ever considered could possibly be true. There were eyewitnesses to that. You are not the inheritor of a creed. You're the inheritor of a family story that you can come to rely on. 
that you can place your confidence in. You have no way of knowing that you had a great, great, great grandmother. You have as much way of knowing that as that you can know that Jesus rose from the dead. How do you know you had a great, 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 great grandmother? Well, I did, what's that new thing? Uh, I did my DNA or whatever that thing is on TV. Um, well, that's how I know. Well, well, so what kind of knowing is that? You never met her, you never kissed her cheek, shook her hand, never ate her cherry cobbler. But you would have no problem saying to a friend, I know that I had a great, 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 great grandmother. Well, when we stand to say the creed, we're stepping into that very human story. It's not a disembodied intellectual statement. It's our family story. And we say, this is what makes coherence of my life. This is what makes meaning of my life. This is the story that I give myself to. So I said when I started that I am a, a worry wart if you listen to my mother. And so, you know, as always, you know, I try to have integrity in what I'm teaching. And in a sense, I can only teach what I've come to know myself. And so I just want to place before you what I've practiced for 25 years and see if it's helpful to you. The first one I want to start with has actually not been a 25-year practice. It's been more like a five or so year practice. And that is I was, to, I was delighted to discover the notion of Ignatian indifference. Don't have time to teach on it this morning. Google it when you go home. But it's just simply the notion that you work to place your present desires and preferences under the service to God's will. So this is not the absence of desire. This is a way of reordering desire. And this is not an Ignatian idea. It's Jesus who said, I only do and say what I see my father doing. It's Jesus who taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's Jesus who in the garden said, nevertheless, thy will be done. So, you know, I'm happy to give Ignatius credit for this. But this is a, in terms of giving us some spiritual practices, but this is a very deeply biblical idea. John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. James, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is a mist that will vanish after a little time. Therefore, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Paul said that he was called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And for him, that, that came to mean to live as Christ and to die as gain. Peter said, cast your cares upon Jesus, for he cares for you. Whenever I read that, I'm like, Peter? Peter said that? Like, where was that notion around the fire when that girl was, you know, challenging him? Right? This is obviously something Peter learned. Like, wow, in hindsight, I really was safe there. Had I known Jesus was going to rise from the dead, I probably could have had some peace there. But it looked like we were losing. To use some street-level language, it looked like we were getting our butts kicked in that moment. And I was really knocked off my game. Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, I couldn't hang in that moment. But in hindsight, I realized you can just cast your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. So number one, I strive to make everything in my life a matter of indifference except for accomplishing the will of God. And what that allows me to do is give myself to you as your servant. It allows me to give myself as a husband and as a father because it's only God and everybody else's good that ultimately matters to me. And that is hugely freeing. You just can't, I, I could stand here all day. That is enormously freeing. Secondly, I say to myself many times throughout the day, 
that I'm always safe in the kingdom of God. That is a major mental, emotional framework for me. That no matter what's happening, whether I'm asking a donor for a huge check and feeling that little nervousness of what if they reject me? What if they don't like me? What if they like my idea? Or I'm having a difficult, I know I have to have a difficult conversation or you know what life's like. I'll just in those moments throughout the day remind myself, no, I'm always safe in the kingdom of God. And this is why you've heard me say 20 times and I hope you hear me say it 20 more times. Just my, one of my favorite mental models for myself, a little worry wart, is Matthew 11 in the message. Come to me. Get away with me. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I just, I remind myself of that, I don't know, five times a day. That this is what's real. And then lastly for me, I'll sometimes, even just in the morning as I'm thinking about a day, I'll just remind myself the Lord is my shepherd. I don't have to live today in the state of wanting. So again, look at me. If I'm living in a state of wanting, I can't be present to you. I can only be present to my wants. I can't be present as a leader. I can't be present to my wife. I can't be present to my kids. I can't be present to my work. If I'm living constantly, habitually guided by my wanter, but as soon as I, in the morning, remind myself, the Lord is my shepherd, I do not need to live in the state of want. And I think, of course, of these words from Paul. I've learned by now how to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, whatever I have or wherever I am. So as we come to our quiet moment, just kind of putting an underline under this, Regarding peace, as I was thinking about this, I could think of myself who was labeled a worrywart. And I was thinking about you and thinking that probably lots of you in this room, maybe even most of you, may think of yourself temperamentally. That is to say, you may think of your temperament in ways that do not make for peace. In other words, you might think of yourself as, well, gosh, I'm so angry so much of the time or... Maybe you think, gosh, I just feel like I live with anxiety or I live with nervousness. And I just want to say, so get over yourself. That's true for all of us. I I, Seriously, I don't know anybody who hasn't at least struggled with that on their way to finding a way of making peace with themselves. But here's what I want you to put before yourself as we come to this quiet moment. What do you intend regarding peace? Do you intend to keep living in your family system? Do you intend to keep living in your present wiring? What do you intend? Or do you intend the invitation of Eastertide, of resurrection as a basis for Christian life? And if so, then maybe you can just sit quietly for a moment and wonder how might you take the first step? I mean, I've given you the steps I take, How might you take a first step towards peace? In what new way might you give yourself this morning to the Prince of Peace? And if neither one of those really work for you, maybe this one will. If the resurrection really does demonstrate the power of God, then maybe you could wonder for a moment this morning how you can begin to practice the presence of that power. 
Are you hearing me? A little different than just practicing the presence of God. What if you narrowed that to, when I feel a lack of peace, I want to practice the presence of the power of God who raised Jesus to life. And to do so as an intentional way to cultivate a peace-filled heart, from which then the attitudes and deeds of the kingdom may come. Just sit for a moment and wonder, what do you intend?